0: Today is July 14th, 2016, and my guest is Angela Duckworth of the University of Pennsylvania, where she's a professor of psychology, founder and director of The Character Lab, MacArthur Fellow, and author of Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Angela, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: So we first, uh, listeners may remember your name. I think it was mentioned in the episode we did with Paul Tuff a long time ago about on how children succeed and he was and i assume is still a big fan of your work Uh, it's how i first heard of you and now your books come out recently so i thought it'd be great to sit down and talk let's begin with i think what's something of a challenging question the word grit is a word we know from everyday english language Uh, it has certain meanings i think to all of us Uh, what does it mean to you when you call your book grit
1: i define grit as a combination of passion and perseverance for challenging and meaningful long-term goals. So not just being resilient, which is, I think, how a lot of people define grit, but, but also caring about something, you know, loving something, wanting to be resilient about something specifically meaningful to you.
0: And when you study it, which is um, what you've done a great deal of, when you try to formalize that idea, how do you, how do, you do that? And how, what are you looking to try to find uh, relationships between how do you first how do you measure grit and then what are you often trying to establish a relationship between grit and something else what are some of the things you, you've looked at
1: so measuring measuring what you're interested in of course always the first challenge to the social scientist and when i started studying grit it was in my first years of graduate school and i had been interviewing high achievers and trying to figure out what their What their personalities were like and eventually coming to understand that this combination seemed not the only thing that was signature to these higher achievers, but it was a common denominator. Uh, And so, for example, artists want to be creative um, and they will say things like, I like to make stuff. But you don't always find that a successful hedge fund managers will say, I like to create stuff. I like to express myself. So what was interesting to me was what, what does a great hedge fund manager have in common with a great artist and a great chess player, a swimmer, et cetera? This combination of passion and perseverance, when it came out in the interviews, I then wanted to say, well, how do I study this more systematically? I created a questionnaire called The Grit Scale, and almost verbatim, it actually has Phrases that would come up with inter uh, come up in interviews of the people that I had been studying really qualitatively as as people who are really great in their field, and particularly when when you ask a great performer to describe the person that he or she admires most, then I got. You know, much you know, richer descriptions, and so items on the grit scale include things like, um, uh, you know, uh, I I don't give up, you know, setbacks don't disappoint me, or I finish whatever I begin. It's those kinds of phrases that you simply respond to if you're taking the grit scale, and you say, yeah, that's a lot like me. Maybe it's not much like me. That's how I've been measuring grit in my research.
0: So one of the things that came to my mind when I when I looked at that was that what you're really what you're. De- Explicitly measuring there is how gritty people see themselves, not necessarily how gritty they actually are. so I think of myself as a pretty gritty person and i i looked i filled out the grit scale casually i didn't didn 't get to a number sorry um, so i can 't report but uh, you know I think of myself as gritty, but i maybe i 'm not maybe i 'm fooling myself. What do you do to to deal with that issue and and or is it enough to say that how we perceive ourselves is is what is important for for our achievement
1: well it's it's absolutely true of any questionnaire that when somebody fills it out about themselves all you can get is what they think they are like and there's got to be some error there, right? Because let's assume that people or that most people don't perfectly know themselves. So it's absolutely a limitation of the scale. And the question is, does that error, does that limitation make it you know um unusable and i think the what we found because grit does predict longitudinal outcomes like will you finish the first summer of training at west point how far will you get in the national spelling bee and how much practice will you do in order to become a better speller because the grit scale does with some reliability predict these objective outcomes i think it's likely more than just a kind of self perception uh, it, it's it's got to be getting to something real there, um, because it's implausible to me that somebody's like untethered uh, conceptions of their own grandeur would then predict these objective outcomes. If it was if it was all that kind of noise, that said, I'm sure there has got to be some you know uh, like people who you know vastly overrate their grit or, or vastly underrated. underrated. Yeah, sure.
0: Uh, so one of the f- fun things about this book is first your research looks at a really wide range of examples like the ones you just mentioned, West Point, Survival, Spelling Bee Champions, uh, a lot of very interesting stories about uh, successful people out in the world, you know, ranging from NFL football coaches to to business people and other standard forms of, of endeavor, swimmers, world-class swimmers. So you really... Um, you really get around. It's pretty amazing, uh, but it seems to me, uh, and you're very uh, persistent. You're very we we know that you're a gritty person because you persist in reaching some of these people. I'm sure very busy, uh, but it seems to me that, that you're very um, you underplay the role of talent. And uh, you know, as reading reading the book and your work, I wonder about that and. You make some dramatic claims about grit versus talent in the book, and I want to know tr- – I want to try to get a little more uh, quantitative measure if you can provide it for the role of talent. It, at some points in the book, you almost suggest that talent's uh, effects are small compared to perseverance and passion. And Do you want to – do I interpret that correctly?
1: Well, you know, I I, I first want to say what I mean by talent because as somebody who studies what I study, I'm very um, – uh, aware that people use the word talent in different ways and sometimes people use the word talent synonymously with skill that's very often how it's used in the business world you know when somebody says you know what we really need to bring in high talent that's the most important thing that this company can do oftentimes what that business person means is we need to find the best people at at their job and and this hire everything them. yeah which It's sort of everything, but it's sort of roughly like all skills that might matter, but it's what they can do. But then when you think about kids in second grade who take IQ tests so that they can be admitted to the gifted and talented program, well, that's not necessarily looking for second graders who have mastered a skill at a certain level of proficiency. That word there, talent, means their potential, and that's why I think it goes along with gifted, like what they could do, right? Yep. So I think we're we're sloppy, actually, in how we use the word. We use it sometimes to mean one thing, sometimes to mean another. I specifically mean talent to, you know, when I use the word, I mean it as the rate at which you get better with effort. The rate at which you get better at soccer is your soccer talent. The rate at which you get better at math is your math talent talent you know, given that you're putting forth a certain amount of effort. And I absolutely believe, and not everyone does, but I think most people do, that there are differences in talent among us, that we are not all equally talented. So just to be clear, um, yeah, and, and not that you said this, but just to be clear, I don't think that we, you know, are laboring, I'm not laboring under the illusion that we're all equally blessed with aptitudes in, in all domains. The reason why I think that talent... Uh, you know, has kind of overshadowed other things that matter to long-term achievement is uh, the same reason that the sociologist Dan Chambliss, somebody who I um, interviewed and talked to, you know, for the book, but otherwise, right, just as a fellow scholar who's interested in high achievers, I have the same concerns about talent that, that he does. I think so often when we see high achievement, we leap to the conclusion that uh, that that individual got there because of talent. And so there's almost this, um, well, if you can't explain it, it must be talent knee-jerk reflex. And I think that actually is probably why there's this sloppiness in the language. Oh, sometimes we mean it To be a, you know, acquired skill, what they've achieved with, with both talent and effort. Sometimes I'm just going to use it synonymously with aptitude and potential and giftedness. And I think that slippage is in part because we very often assume that aptitude leads to achievement almost automatically or without a whole lot of other inputs. So I, I, I would say that in my research studies, you know, I am not necessarily interested in running horse races between uh, a measure of talent like an i q test and and the grit scale. i I think you know i I've done studies where you know i i I measure both i q. And grit to see, for example, whether I can predict who's going to finish West Point training. But it's not necessarily so I can look at the regression coefficients and say, like, well, this one's this. I think, um, more meaningfully, it's, you know, what, what value is there in, um, a, a trait like grit over and above IQ when you hold IQ constant? And it turns out in the data, that, uh, it almost doesn't matter whether these things are in the same simultaneous model because grit and IQ tend to be, uh, not correlated, um, or at least not positively correlated or not reliably positively correlated. So, so I'm interested in the fact that this is something different from talent and it matters enormously. And for some outcomes, certainly not all success outcomes, but for some outcomes, like finishing something that's hard, like West Point training, uh, it, it seems that it is much more important. So, so I'm interested in how it's a different thing and what things it might be more relevant to than others. But not just so that I can, you know, sit around and compare regression coefficients.
0: Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that the talent is a multifaceted word. And I also um, don't think I don't doubt the fact, even before your research or reading it, that. That effort and perseverance are incredibly, incredibly important, and I do think that young people, especially, overrate raw talent, whatever you want to call that aptitude, potential, and forget the role that that effort and grit and perseverance play. I think I think the the challenge is uh, there are a lot of interesting challenges we'll talk about. One of I one I worry about is is selection bias, which you talk about a little bit in the book, but I talk about it here. Know, basically, it's true that a lot of people succeed through hard work, but there are a lot of people who put hard work in who fail, and they tend not to make it into your, into your narrative. So how do you know whether uh, the role of, ta- of excuse me of effort is overrated because you're mainly looking at successes?
1: Well, first, I want to completely agree with you that, I mean, call it what you will. Sometimes it's called sampling on the dependent variable, right? If you look at high achievers and you say, well, here's this one thing that they have in common, you, you haven't uh, accounted for the fact that you could have looked at the other tail of the distribution and found that they also right. have the same thing in common, yeah. right? Um, and uh, that is certainly true of you know interviews, right? And I think that the interviews that I did for the book were um, partly because I, as a psychologist, I, there is something that you can get out of talking to someone and understanding an end of one life in, in its particulars that you can't get out of you know your sample of 12,000 people who took a questionnaire, you know with whom you with which you correlate other questionnaires and, and outcomes. So the the major limitation of interviews really is, I think, that um, you don't really know what you don't know, and it's not a um, systematic sample. That said, there are other kinds of research that, uh, that that i've that I've done on grit and others have done on on grit and related constructs where you do have all of the people who start off at West Point and they do take the questionnaire all of them right now that doesn't mean to say that you know there isn't some selection into who even started at West Point, but of those right. who started, everybody takes the questionnaire and now you look uh, at what happens so I think you know it's important to acknowledge that limitation, but I think that's why you always need different uh techniques to bear on the same problem because everything is going to be flawed in some way and
0: that's a very important flaw so let's talk about the ten thousand hour idea, which is sort of something related to what you're talking about. And we've talked about it before on the program you know it started off as this idea that if you spend ten thousand hours uh well there's two ways to say it. if you spend ten thousand hours something you 're going to become good at it, and there's no way to get good at anything unless you spend ten thousand hours to or at least to be great at something and there's been a quite a bit of um, pushback against that uh, both those claims uh, ten thousand hours doesn 't always lead to greatness, and not every great athlete musician, et cetera, has um, put in the ten thousand occasionally there are these exceptions, maybe often so wh- where do you what do you feel about that obviously? perseverance by itself is not sufficient. I, I think you would agree with that. And is yeah. that because of aptitude? Is it because some people persevere uh, in, in, imperfectly? That is, they don't practice well. What, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, the 10,000 hour, I, I guess I'll call it a meme because it's, yeah. it's gone viral, right? Um, thanks to Malcolm Gladwell, the journalist who very eloquently um, wrote about it in I think it's still a bestseller actually, Outliers. It, it's been on the New York Times bestseller list for something ever. like four, <laughs> yes, exactly, something like forever. Forever. Um, forever, forever. Yeah, 10,000, uh, more than $10,000, that's true. Um, so uh, I, I, I think that there are a lot of misconceptions around the 10,000 hour rule. Um, I think these are things that Malcolm Gladwell's uh, now very aware of. Um, certainly Anders Ericsson, who's the scientist. Who did, did the work on the ten thousand hours of practice i mean he's he 's very aware of them and has written about this misunderstanding and how uh, unhappy he is about it, but the one one misunderstanding is that you know there 's something magic about ten thousand that 's obviously a round number <laughs> average of yeah. you know it 's actually one study of German musicians in their twenties and how many hours they had done to distinguish themselves. Uh, from from less accomplished musicians in the same study. So there's nothing magic about 10,000. Um, I think the quality of the practice is a second misconception. It's not 10,000 hours of anything. It's not even 10,000 hours of just time on task. It's 10,000 hours of a certain kind of practice that Anders Ericsson has found to be unique to high achievers or certainly uh, characteristic of high achievers. They don't just go in and practice in a kind of... Um, unsophisticated way. They are working on very specific focal weaknesses. Um, often those activities are planned with a coach or some kind of expert who tells them exactly how they should get better next. They practice with full attention, full engagement. They're they're um, often found to be practicing alone, even when it's a team sport like basketball, which I think is fascinating. Um, yeah. Players like Kevin Durant or Bill Bradley back in the day practiced many, many hours alone. I I think, in order, actually, to to achieve that kind of concentration. Then, timely feedback, ideally, immediate feedback um, on what they did right, what they did wrong, then they make these micro adjustments to what they were doing, and this actually goes not only for physical activities like basketball but also mental activities, you know chess and um, writing and so forth, uh, where you just you know, make this little adjustment and then you, you sort of go at the whole thing again it 's not the kind of practice that most of us put in, and when I first met Anders, and I think I put this in the book i You know, asked about why I wasn't a better runner after thousands of hours, maybe not 10,000, but certainly thousands of hours of jogging had made me seemingly no faster than I had ever been, and it's because I wasn't doing this high-quality practice. So, there are misconceptions around the 10,000 hours, but you've also raised some other objections, which I think are are legitimate. It it can't be, even if we made these adjustments, okay, it's an average, um, it's also about the quality of your practice, um, it can't be that that's the only thing that matters, your own personal effort. Um, I personally think that talent matters, so that's one factor. Somebody could work for 10,000 or more hours and not have the aptitude, not not be changing in their skill as fast as other people, and so they're just not going to get as far. Um, And a lot of our decisions when we are young are about how talented we think we are. So, though I think we might overestimate the role of talent, I certainly don't want people to negate its relevance altogether. Uh, you should go out and do things that are, that, that are, that come relatively easily to you. Uh, it would be foolish to do anything else. And there's luck. I, I know I've, I've heard you, uh, on this very, uh, show talk about luck on more than one occasion. And, um, it's a stochastic. I mean, yeah. th- <laughs> luck counts, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you study it as a social scientist because it's by definition stochastic, but luck matters. And then maybe something which some people would call luck, but you could, you could consider it, I think, categorically in its own, you know, sort of separate, column, which is opportunity, right? I mean, we do not live in an equal society. Opportunities are not meted out fairly. Uh, we know that poor children get teachers who are uh, less able than, than rich children, and that's going to make an enormous difference. And that's separate, I think, from your grit um, or your talent. So I think there are lots of uh, things that, that matter uh, other than 10,000 hours of gritty practice.
0: Yeah, it's um, complicated, as I like to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, you you have a a, a powerful statement uh, way into the book. You say it's a powerful statement, followed by a to me a surprising statement. You write the following: you You talk about your goals at work. You say your goal at work is to quote use psychological science to help kids thrive. Then you're right, but I have a separate goal hierarchy that involves being the best mother I can be to my two daughters i'm curious why those two are separate and what thrive means to you
1: yeah i I, I want to say something about you know what motivated me to even um, you know utter bumper sticker phrases like use psychological science to help kids thrive I, I think that I many it. <laughs>
0: Just, you way, like that? It's yeah, good. I'm a sucker it for some bumper, level. Too. Yeah, some bumper <laughs> stickers get to me even, uh, even when I know they're bumper stickers.
1: Yeah, well, you know, there's a reason why they're on bumpers, right? Um, so, so, The ones that wouldn't have gotten to you maybe didn't make it on the bumper. But um, I, I think that in the words of Pete Carroll, the coach of the Seattle Seahawks, who I've learned a lot about, from about grid and in the book, it's it's incredibly useful to have some kind of what he calls a life philosophy, what David Brooks would call a telos. You know, some some something that you're working on. And when I talk about passion and perseverance for long-term goals, I mean, really, that's what I have in mind. Something that organizes and gives meaning to to what you're doing. Now, I have one professionally, and that is to help. Kids through through my psychological research, um, and if I ticked off all the things that I do in a day, boring meetings, you know, difficult conversations, revise and resubmit manuscripts. Really, most of those things, and I hope more and more I can say, in some form or another, serve that ultimate telos. Now, I have a separate. Goal hierarchy, a separate telos when I walk in the door after work, and I turn that key and and now it 's not really helping children through psychological science thrive it's it 's my own family, my own kids now of course there's some overlap there I mean they're kids, and yes, I use psychology on them in the sense that every parent uses some you know we 're all doing some kind of psychology on our kids, whether we do it well or whether we admit to it or not, but if I were a botanist you know if I worked on Plants, you know, I would have a prof, I mean, the overlap is just um, coincidental, really, right? Because, uh, you know, I have professional goals and they are separate from personal goals. That's me, and I think that's many of the people that I've studied. But I will tell you that if you ask Pete Carroll or Mark Vetri, Mark Vetri is a chef that appears in the book. I've gotten to know um, and again learned a lot from. You know, he would say, and I think he would say too, that they may be able to subsume everything under one hierarchy, like one bumper sticker phrase that could that could effectively describe not only their professional goals but their personal goals, too. Mark Vetri has said, for example, that he doesn't understand this phrase, work-life balance, but because for him, it's all of a piece. Um, and for Pete Carroll, you know, I think he would say, you know, always compete, be your best. I mean, these are very abstract bumper stickers that people uh, get to usually when they were able to in five words express everything that they're trying to do. And for Pete Carroll, too, I mean, maybe it helps that a couple of his kids, <laughs> maybe all of them actually at this point work somehow with the Seahawks organization or with his work, but you know that said, I, I think that um, even if you don't end up putting everything into one Uber pyramidal hierarchy uh, with one telos at the top, what I do think is helpful for many people is to have some organizational structure so that that they can answer that question. You know, what are you about? What are you working toward?
0: Yeah, I think I misinterpreted the the uh, passage actually. So that's that's very helpful. Your remarks remind me of a. Uh, Story told. I don't know if it's true or not, but story told about George Allen, the uh, former coach of the Washington Redskins. He he was once allegedly quoted as saying, "I don't send Christmas cards. They don't help me win football games." So he had a very clear, to me, unattractive but <laughs> clear hierarchy <laughs> about his work life yeah. balance, and that's one. That's his choice. That's fine. Um, but I actually, I so I misinterpreted it. So, but let's go back to the to the. Because I thought maybe you meant something different about thrive. I assume then when you walk in the door, even though you, of course, will use your psychological research, but your goal is, correct me if I'm wrong, is that your children thrive. Is that accurate? Is that the way you would see your role as a parent?
1: Yeah, my role as a parent is to make my kids thrive. And I have a friend, a psychologist, whose permission I didn't get, so I won't name this person. But um, I've asked this question collaborator of mine, you know, how do you, do you feel like you have one goal hierarchy or two? And, and, and this person was able to articulate really one, I think it was to help people thrive or you know, to help people be their best. And, and, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but when you get to this level of abstraction, you, you do feel like you're in the world of hackneyed cliches. Um, but there's a reason why they're hackneyed too. Anyway, and, 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 and that phrase, you know, to help people be their best, I I think included both the kids and also the research subjects or the, you know, the population this person was studying. Other people's kids. (laughs) Other people's kids. So, you know, in some ways I could, you know, put these all under one thing. But the reason I hesitate to do that is I recognize that had I become passionate and persevering professionally about something that didn't have to do with kids, right? It's it's just a kind of an accident in a way that I might be able to put them, for me anyway, all under one hierarchy. I mean, I really, you know, what if I'd become a dermatologist or a, you know. A Your kids would dermatologist have great skin. Or probably. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, maybe. maybe so. well, 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 certainly. well, but the shoemaker's children often go without shoes. So <laughs> maybe, maybe go the other way. Um, maybe not. The, the more interesting question, though, is I'm curious what the word I mean, I happen to really like the word thrive, and I happen to like, again, that hackneyed cliche, uh, either as a, uh, a professional goal or a personal goal as a parent, to help my children thrive. What does that mean to you?
1: Mm. I I mean it uh, for sure to be more than just being outwardly successful. Um, achievement, I think, is something that most human beings want, at least in some capacity at some level. There is a basic drive to be competent and to be, um, To be capable and to do something that's valuable in the world, and to be recognized, and you know, to quote your favorite thinker Adam Smith, to you know, to um, be praised and to be praiseworthy. And I think uh, that's partly about your achievement, but uh, even if you just take praise and praiseworthiness, it's not only about your achievement because we're certainly praised for things other than our achievements, like being nice, um, being ethical, being honest and upright, doing the right thing. So when I say thrive, I don't don't mean simply you know finishing west point doing better at the spelling bee getting through uh, the end of your college degree having a uh, a successful professional career winning the super bowl i don't mean it only to be that but i think for most people some level of our some some aspect of our you know overall flourishing we would say is related to achievement and if we were dramatically unsuccessful in everything that we tried to do that would you know make it hard for us to say that we were thriving i think that there are dimensions that i don't personally study as a scientist that are important i don't study ethics and morality um i think some people interpret that as meaning that i don't care about ethics and morality um, you know, I don't study the melting polar ice caps either, but I'm very concerned about the melting polar ice caps. So just to be clear, I think thriving means, uh, being an ethical and upstanding person, having good personal relationships with the people who you care about and who care about you. Um, I think it means having a healthy life of the mind, being a curious and open-minded person, uh, listening to your podcast, for example. Um, huge. but also, you know, huge. That's number <laughs> one. Maybe that's more important than yeah, ethics. Almost anything. Uh, <laughs> yeah, listen, to econ talk, but uh, but 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 then uh, inclusive, you know, achievement, and you know, people can put whatever weight on achievement that they want, but I think most people put more than zero weight on achievement, and it is what I study as a psychologist professionally.
0: So I think we need a bumper sticker. Listen to econ talk. I'm sure my listeners can provide <laughs> one. We'd have to, if you if you have a nice design, you have to submit it. They will get permission. Although I wouldn't <laughs> be upset great. if anybody did it on their own and spread them around. Uh, I think it's a lovely thought, <laughs> but I want to ask you a question It's not in the book, but I think it's an interesting question. So uh, obviously, when we think about worldly success, whether it's in business or sports or music, whatever it is, everybody agrees with all the caveats we've we've already talked about that practice matters. Uh, we could be uncertain about how much practice, what kind of practice, but practice clearly matters. Do you think practice matters for things outside of the things that we usually point to, like playing the violin, swimming, uh, being good at at finance uh, or professional sports, whatever it is? That is, if I want to be a more ethical person, is there a way to practice? Is it? You know, meditation is often called a practice with the implication that you're going to get better at it. The implication is that when the real thing happens, life or whenever a, a test comes along of ethics or mindfulness, that you'll be able to be successful in that dimension, not the ones that that revolve around money, say. Have you thought about that at all? Do you think that's – is there I grit? Have. is there grit in ethics? Is there grit in – Uh, Self control?
1: I, I have thought about that. I think it's a fantastic question. And my position on this is yes, there are many things that are not chess, not dance, not solving algebra problems that you could ask. Well, I wonder if practice matters. I wonder if it's a skill. the way these other things are skills. And my answer is in many ways, these things are, and it's not that they're only skills, right? So for example, let's take self-control, right? It's, uh, there's some skill to self-control, maybe not it's not the skills the only thing that was relevant. You know, if you don't believe that you can, so beliefs matter for self-control. If you don't believe you can grow in self-control or that it's possible to control yourself in a situation, it doesn't matter whether you actually have the latent skill, you won't actually exercise it if you don't believe that you can or if you don't have any motivation to exercise self-control in a certain situation, well then, you know, it's, your skill doesn't matter. But... But skill is part of self-control, and 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 you know, let's use one very specific example. What if you're trying to get to the gym, and gosh, you know, you just day after day you wake up, and one thing happens after another, and all of a sudden it's seven o'clock at night, and there goes another day. and Just you didn't hypothetically, go to the
0: gym. just hypothetically,
1: just hypothetically. <laughs> actually, this I don't know if this applies to you, but this actually doesn't apply to me, Russ. It's I'm I don't have a problem. You're a good to the gym goer. I'm getting, well, and let's, let's use me as an example. I do have a problem getting up for yoga in the morning, right? There we go. Uh, Yeah, yeah, there you go. And it's because it's so god awful early and I'm tired because I work really hard. (laughs) So, uh, so that's a self-control problem for me. Now, I have actually acquired some skill in solving that. I have picked up little things. Like, I have figured out that if I Put out my clothes on my bureau the night before. It takes me like 15 seconds. For in the morning, it would take me longer because I'm groggy and I'm, you know, my motivation isn't up. That ease in which I can just, you know, in two steps, walk over to the bureau, grab the clothes that I know I'm going to wear, put them on. That takes me 25 more seconds. And then, you know, walk out the door. That's actually a strategy or a skill that I've picked up that I didn't have at an earlier point. It makes getting to yoga easier. And, uh, and, and I think that is something that I have practiced. um, And I've, you know, gotten feedback, uh, not from a coach, but just from sort of like, oh, and there was the Tuesday that I didn't do that. And guess what, you know, uh, it took me long enough that I, that I ended up not going to yoga, and you got to figure like, oh, what the heck? I'm running late, and I'm just going to skip this one. So I think that there's a lot of about character generally, and it was Aristotle who pointed out that um, you know that, that this could be cultivated. Um, uh, in part because, you know, you can practice it. And then, of course, Aristotle went one step further because what happens to a skill or a strategy that you enact over and over and over again successfully and therefore you're rewarded at some level? Well, we know from psychology that what happens in those circumstances is that you develop a habit. And that, I think, is what Aristotle wanted us to all ultimately achieve, uh, character strengths like self-control that would become so automatic that they wouldn't require at least the conscious level of effort that we associate with uh, you know, doing things like being self-controlled or you know, being gritty in the face of setbacks, et cetera.
0: Yeah, I think the challenge is – and you and I, I think, have talked a little bit about this off the air on a different conversation. Uh, the question is what's the right kind of practice? And I'll give you an example from – from my life, so I want to be less prone to anger. Okay, uh, and there's a there's a you can start to think about the question: What techniques might one use to avoid being provoked to anger? Of course, one solution is to avoid situations that make you angry. But I'm more interested in the case of where something that once made me angry doesn't make me angry anymore. I want to learn to control that, that response, that habit I've gotten into. And I think that's extremely difficult. Um, There's a classic uh, Jewish story of the rabbi who has an angry coat that if anything makes him angry, he has to go and put this coat on. And by the time he gets to the closet and puts the coat on, he's already calmed down. And that's, that's, that's one way of, of developing that habit or trying to restrain that, that character trait. But I think the more interesting case is the case of uh, uh, trying to think about what methods a person either might use in in advance of the provoking incident that would allow a person to develop that self-control. It could be anger, it could be food. Uh, I have a, a weakness for brownies when I see them. I just, it's very hard. Even when I've made a resolution beforehand, if I see a brownie, I'm not going to eat it. When it's there, suddenly everything is different. Uh, have you thought about what, Ways we might practice literally without eating the brownie every time uh, to help us get there.
1: So the so the strategy of avoiding situations in which you. In a, you know, you know, because you know yourself well enough, and life is very recursive, right? I mean, yeah. you know, we often think of like, well, what would you do? But really, much of life just happens to us over and over and over again. It's like Groundhog Day, right? When you're just present, and then you eat the brownie again. And
0: it's Brownie? You know, um, no, it's Groundhog Day, and and you got yoga class when you wake up when that alarm goes off. <laughs> that's your <laughs> yeah, That's, that's right. your version. <laughs>
1: that's my version of groundhog day right exactly um so so if if we um practice the strategy and one question you would say is like well if it's true uh, angela that 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 there's a strategy or skill in selecting situations where we will be our best selves Um, you know, don't go to a bar if you're an alcoholic. Don't walk past the bakery if you're trying to stay on your diet. You know, don't go sit on the end of the Thanksgiving table with your brother in law and start talking politics because the last 17 Thanksgivings that didn't work out so well. Sit on the other end. You know, exactly. Go sit at the kids' table, right? Like, go play touch football. Um, that, I do think, is a skill. I think it can be practiced. I think we can, somebody can tell us, hey, have you tried this? You know, we could try it and maybe not do so well. We could try it again. We could get better and better. I think that, um, you know, the practice is really not all that different from, you know, practicing shooting a basketball, right? I mean, you try, you 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 set a goal of doing something, you give it a shot, you probably don't, uh, literally, in the case of basketball, you uh, you probably don't do as well as you wanted to. You make some adjustment. You're like, you know what? Um, this time, um, you know, I tried that coat trick. I heard that rabbi thing, but I'm really having trouble with doing But that coat thing isn't working for me. But I let me try this. Let me let me try taking a walk, right? Let me take a walk. Oh, that's not working for. You. Well, uh, so this other person said, count backwards from ten that's not working. Well, how about counting backwards from 10 by threes, right? Including negative numbers, right? Like So So I think there are um, lots of ways in which character development uh, is very similar to actually acquiring other sorts of non-character skills. Again, that doesn't mean that character is synonymous with skill. There are other things that go into character like your motivation. Yeah. Um, eventually a skill becomes a habit, but but there's some part of character which is skill-like.
0: I I guess my dream is that I'm sitting at Thanksgiving, I'm with my brother-in-law, we're arguing about the 2016 election, the plate of brownies is being passed around, (laughs) and I I skip the brownies, I smile when he says something uh, I disagree with, and I don't let it get to me. And then we go off and do yoga class together. Uh, you know that would be sort of my <laughs> fantasy of of character transformation. So you know it's it's a higher There's level, a right? Turkey, yeah, exactly. a vegan Turkey, turkey
1: <laughs> it's a free it's range.
0: No, it's a free range vegan turkey.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's no carbs. Yeah. Well, okay. So, um, so, well, Aristotle would say that if you do practice something over and over again, it does become a habit, right? And, and, um, I think that, uh, it could become a habit for you not to sit with your brother in law, but you wanted a different habit. You yeah. wanted a habit where you can approach the temptation, you can be within millimeters of the temptation or microseconds, and, and yet you are, you know, this, um, beatific, virtuous self, and you feel no conflict maybe in this idealized version of your life. Um, Now, that may be possible in certain circumstances, particularly if you use other strategies like cognitive appraisal strategies, and that's jargony, so I apologize. But psychologists have for many decades not forever, but, you know, in, in my lifetime, certainly understood that the objective situation, you know, your brother-in-law, the brownies, the table, those are filtered through our, our minds and we construct them to some extent. You know, you, you bring to the Thanksgiving, uh, tableau your past experiences, your misgivings about your brother-in-law, the time that you thought he, you know, cheated you out of $17 and you will project these onto the situation. And so that, psychological reality is not the same thing as the objective reality. And there is some skill, again, I think you can call it uh, partly at least a skill of appraising or interpreting or understanding that That circumstance in ways that are that are that are more productive, you go to a a therapist, a cognitive therapist uh sometimes you know they identify themselves as cognitive behavioral therapists, but you know they they work on on this skill of interpreting your projective circumstances in ways that are more accurate and certainly more adaptive and they give you homework and then you come back and you know you try again and you know that's you're being coached really i mean that that's one of the reasons why I think that Skills like emotion regulation are are exactly that they're they're skill like. Um, I think that you might at some point achieve the you know nirvana like state of sitting down with somebody who's on the opposite end of the political spectrum, saying all the things that might otherwise get under your skin, and you know. But I, I think it's not the it's not what I would recommend as a psychologist as, as the as the route to go. Um, I think it's actually much more clever and more efficient to do what Thomas Schelling, the economist, said, which is you know use whatever trickery you can to uh, make things easier. And and I don't think rethinking the situation is the easiest strategy in most cases.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question. And maybe we'll come back to that um, not at the end of this episode, but in a year or two. I'd love to come back to those issues as I think um, really interesting question. But let's come back to grit. Uh, and I appreciate the uh, detour. Uh, you argue that that grit is more plastic than we think. Um, how plastic is it? I think one reaction that some people might have to your work is that, sure, perseverance matters, but it's kind of, it's a character trait. You have it or you don't. And uh, certainly when I look at my children and other people's children, I see on the surface at least a wide range of grittiness and perseverance uh, isn't it maybe just something that we have or or don't have
1: so so maybe you're asking the nature nurture question right because when you know one you know that's certainly one way in which you can have it or not right it's in your DNA um, and maybe I'll just address that part first, which is for sure, grit is heritable. I used to say when I would give talks about grit, well, it must be heritable partly because every personality trait, or you can call them character strengths, but these are just semantics, right? Like everything that is, is uh, you know true about you is, is influenced by your, your DNA. And then about a year ago, there was a study done of twins in the United Kingdom where they actually had twins take the grit scale. And this is a classic twin study, you know, twins raised apart, twins raised together. You, you basically back into the math and you get an estimate of how much we think that genes must explain the variation in grit in the population. And the estimates came back from that study a little lower than I thought they would be, you know, 20 to 40%, but nevertheless, you know, affirming the idea that grit is partly uh, a function of your genetic heritage over which you have zero control and which you really can't expect to change in your lifetime meaningfully, right? There's epigenetics and so forth, but just leaving that aside, your DNA is your DNA. Um, That, of course, leaves a lot left that's not DNA to explain. So this is true for not just grit, but everything. It's not nature or nurture in almost... Every case that you can imagine, and certainly all the ones that I can imagine, nature and nurture, um, and then of course it gets more complicated in that nature via nurture, you know, nurture via. There's, there's there's a lot more to say, of course, about heritability, but I don't think that's all you meant because it's it's also um, plausible that you know maybe your early childhood experiences fixed your grit in combination with your genes, but you know you hire a 24 year old, you don't expect that 24 year old to be all that different over the course of the time that they work for you because those things were fixed earlier. And that's another way that, that grit could be unchangeable. Yep. And here I have to rely on research that's not just about grit, because I started studying grit as a graduate student in, you know, the just around the turn of the millennium, but that's not that long ago. There's been many more studies done and longitudinal studies done of other traits. And what do we know about how personality and character change over the lifetime based on those studies? Well, one thing we know is that In terms of rank order stability, you know line up hundred people from highest to lowest in any given trait now line them up again seven years later now line them up again seven years later how much does the rank ordering change well it changes more than than you would think I think it was um, you know uh, William James or could have been another thinker who said you know show me the you know uh, the the, the so show, show me the child I'll show you the man. well that's biblical but I think William James also said you know your your personality is set like plaster um, after a certain you know reasonably early Early age; those intuitions are not supported by data that show that you know, well into your 40s and 50s, you know, you you, you get a fair amount of movement. I think the plateau of rank order stability is about an R of 0.7 in your 50s. Um, that is about what it is, you know subsequently might even go down from there, but it's never one, right? The rank order stability isn't ever perfect. Um, And for much of our life, it's well below our 0.7. So, you know, it depends on where your intuitions were. I don't know if that's shockingly, uh, you know, more stable than you thought or less stable, but depends on where you start. But for sure, we can say that when you line people up from greatest to lowest in any trait, that rank order will not be perfectly stable over, over time. And the second thing that longitudinal research has revealed is that you can look at mean level changes, not how we compare to others, but just how we are, uh, period. And um, there is considerable movement on things like conscientiousness. That's a family of personality traits that includes grit and self-control, the two things that we've been talking about. It also includes being a dependable person, being trustworthy, uh, to some extent being a traditional person. But this big family of traits has been studied extensively by many, many psychologists, and there are you know, fairly sizable changes. When you compare a 22-year-old to a, a, you know, a 32-year-old to a 42-year-old to a 52-year-old, reliably, people get substantially more conscientious over the lifetime. And I should have the estimates more at my fingertips, but I'm thinking that the order of magnitude is, you know, .5 or .7 or even more uh, in terms of standard deviation difference uh, changes in absolute levels of something like conscientiousness over the lifetime. So, so that to me says, you know, you, you know, you will, um, um, you will, you will be wrong if you say that. Well, you know, you really um, can't expect somebody to change. And those two ways, people do change. Um, uh, you well, know, I, not I mean, not always on your schedule. You know, the only
0: thing I challenge about that is again the question of self-perception. I think it's interesting. I feel like, and I think most people, I'm 61. I think most people who are as they get older, think about all the ways they've changed. The Lessons they've learned, uh ideally, the habits they've left behind, maybe the good habits they've acquired, or worse, the bad habits they've picked up and and yet, when you encounter as I did uh recently someone I hadn't seen in forty years, and i I was struck right away by how much they were like I remembered them and how similar mm-hmm. they seemed, and then I thought he probably felt the same way about me but he doesn't realize yeah. i'm so i'm so different now i've learned so much i'm so much wiser and more patient whatever it is and yet he seemed to have many of the the personality ticks both positive and negative that i had remembered from from before in fact i'd forgotten most of them but they quickly were i was reminded when i when i saw him and and talked to him for half an hour uh, and so i wonder if i have really changed i would fill out a questionnaire differently now than when I was 25 or 30. I wonder if I'm really a different person, though. It's hard to know.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And when you ask, um, you know, when you query the scientific literature and you say, okay, well, just show me the studies where this personality data is not simply self-report questions. So, for example, I want spousal reports or, you know, informant yeah, reports. Then go. it's much smaller, right? <laughs> um, now, I think there have been a handful of studies using these other techniques and logically looking, and I, um, I think the results are roughly consistent. But that is a very, very good point. It could be that our self perception changes more than the reality. I don't think it's just that, though. I mean, I think about my own parents, and again, you know, take it for what it's worth. It's not a and systematic study. And of two, and <laughs> of, of one, really, Maybe. right? Because the data is nested yeah. uh, within me as one observer. But you know, my my parents. It, I'm not saying that they changed wholly, right? That I, there's no Nothing that was the same about my parents when I was a little girl to the way that uh, they were when I grew up. But you know, my parent, my dad in particular, got considerably more even-tempered. You know, he just he just got a lot nicer and a lot more. Mature. And in fact, maturity principle is the, is the phrase, is the name that personality psychologists have given to this phenomenon of, of personalities changing because mostly it's in a good direction. And so it's not um, random change and it's not change for the worse. In general, people become more conscientious, more uh, in control of their impulses, better at um, uh, having you know, some kind of equanimity in their emotions, nicer, more considerate, uh, more dependable. So, so I think there's um, until uh, a certain point
0: when, when the cranky old person reveals themselves, but uh, (laughs) ideally never, ideally never, but there is that other sort of stereotype that as you get older, you, you get not just wiser and mellower, but eventually angrier and bitterer. but I don't know. Well, you know, that's this is the problem
1: with averages, right? I mean, they obscure a lot of heterogeneity in you know individual. I'm I'm sure there are people who just become awful Scrooge-like characters, um, but there are a lot of maybe more people who are getting nicer. Um, So, so so, these things are uh, true, and I think when we try to. when we try to think in binary terms you know, does personality change or does it not change is it nature or nurture you know that's where our minds go naturally with these questions but um, but, they, but the truth is it's nature and nurture and the truth is there is stability in a personality or a character over time and there is also
0: change and
1: that is very hard to think about I mean, even for me i mean it's yeah. hard for me to you know nuance is not comfortable
0: well, the spousal report's really interesting because I think uh, the spouse we all have certain narratives about ourselves, and we try to change them, perhaps if we don't, if we're not happy with them. And we also have our narratives about other people, and we cherry pick the data to make sure those narratives don't change uh, about the other people. And so, when we do observe something that's different, say it pro- if it doesn't fit the narrative, we probably our mind probably often ignores it. If there's nothing at stake. So, surveying right. spouses about uh, changes in in behavior is is very challenging because the spouses themselves have their right. own habits about the people around them, and it's anyway, it's an interesting question. Yeah,
1: the, yeah, exactly. So, so let's not um, let's not fool ourselves into thinking that if we got away from self-report questionnaires into yeah. some other thing, you know, that 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 would be perfect. And by the way, that goes for famous psychological measures like the marshmallow test as well. It's a really, really amazing... Reliable predictor of life outcomes. You know how long a four-year-old will wait for two marshmallows versus eating one right away. But that's not a perfect measure by any means. You know, it's uh, uh, got a lot of error in it. Uh, It's you know, it it can be influenced by whether the experimenter um, made good on a promise versus uh, you know told you that a certain thing was going to happen and then yeah, uh, recently challenged
0: by researchers at University of Rochester. Yeah. Saw that
1: exactly. I'm a big skeptic so then, yeah. about the
0: marshmallow test. I don't. I don't disagree that self control is important. It surely is important. But whether it's genetic at four years old, you know, I just there's a lot going on there. than more than meets the eye, I think.
1: Yeah. Well, I won't take up your time talking about that. But uh, I've studied that, and so if you ever
0: want to talk about, it, I'm happy to. You could add a couple more caveats. Go ahead. Well, I actually –
1: I I would be interested, like, what are your um, concerns because I recently did a validation study to see whether the marshmallow test really is actually measuring self-control or maybe something else like intelligence or socioeconomic status uh, or just hunger. And what I found is that the preponderance of the data – and this collected not just by private researchers but by the government, right, by the National Institute of Health – Sample of about a thousand kids who took the marshmallow test at age four and had a wide battery of other measures, a multi-test IQ test, uh, parent and caregiver ratings of temperament on various well-validated scales, and then longitudinal data into their mid and late teens, you know, transcripts from their high school, standardized test scores, BMI using nurse recordings of height and weight. Um, you know, the preponderance of the data suggests to me that it is a test of self-control. The longer kids wait, the more their caregivers and their preschool teachers, you know, the parents and their pre- like, will rate them higher in things like effortful control. Um, it predicts all the things that it's supposed to predict, like your grades. And this is true even when you hold constant socioeconomic status and IQ. So to me, it feels like any other measure imperfect, but but it does seem to me to be validly assessing what it was
0: designed to assess. Okay, well, I feel better. A little bit. A (laughs) little bit. Maybe you can sleep tonight. Yeah, I'm going to. No, what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy some some more marshmallows for my kids. You should buy, right? Because I know people go.
1: Well, what are you thinking about
0: it? What was your thinking? No, my thinking is there's a lot more going on there. I don't know how big the sample was. So some of your points answer those concerns. Uh, I do think it raises the question. I want to come back to grit now, which is as a parent, and you give advice in the book about parenting, as a parent, given. I want to bring us back to the plasticity or malleability of grit. If I want my kids to be grittier, or if I want my kids to have more self-control or perseverance, whatever aspect of this we're discussing, one, how might I go about encouraging that? Because it's a big diff- There's a big leap from saying it changes versus you can change it. There's a relationship, but it's not the same thing. And That's secondly, right. would be uh, you know what do we know about this, if anything, in terms of of our ability to influence it? Because I think. Even before your book, I think you're very uh, you're an incredibly uh, influential person right now in the in the educational reform space. And certainly, parents are always eager to give their kids better lives. So your book's selling like hotcakes. So congrats! But but mm-hmm. it's a, but I was going to say before you came along, I think most parents understood it was a good idea to have kids who had self control or a good idea to persevere. So my question is: Have we learned anything about how to get better at it?
1: I think we've learned some. I think we are still in extraordinarily early days for really understanding um, beyond that it can be changed, how might one intentionally change it? Um, And that's a really important distinction to make, right? Malleability does not mean uh, teachability. I well am encouraged by, thank you, bumper sticker.
0: Well, it took me um, a while. I got, mine took 30 seconds, yours took four. Good job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you. Um, I'm encouraged by some early results. So, uh, one, I'll just point to the work that Carol Dweck and her colleagues have done on growth mindset, where changing a belief about how malleable human nature really is I mean she's focused a lot on intelligence but it, it extends to other things you know people might have in their uh, mind the theory that not only intelligence but personality traits don't change and we sort of touched upon that if you have that belief that that people don't change that will influence what you do and how you interact with the world and uh, and it will make you inclined to fulfill that prophecy in fact right and and um, take failure as a indication of a purpose and fatal diagnosis of what you're going to do. She can change your mindset in relatively brief interventions, some of them lasting as, uh, short, as short as a class period, um, and, and change kids' minds about whether, in fact, human nature is uh, so fixed after all. And that has long-lasting effects on their persistence on difficult academic tasks and their objective performance in school. So there should be more research than there is, researchers are doing everything they can to accelerate the process, but just those early findings, I think, are encouraging. In my own work, I find that when you talk to kids about deliberate practice and you reveal to them how experts really get better at what they do, and it's not tricking them into saying, like, well, talent doesn't matter. It's all about effort. No, no, no. It's simply telling them that when experts practice, they work on something specific that they can't do. They get a lot of help from other people like coaches. They get a lot of feedback on On what they've done, and even when they try their hardest, which they always do if they're experts, they're going to get all this feedback on what they did wrong, and they're going to feel confused and frustrated, and sometimes they might even feel stupid, but they recognize that's part of learning, so they get up and they do it again. When we share with kids that reality, they try harder when we give them deliberate practice opportunities. They change their way of understanding frustration. They're more likely to say that frustration is part of learning. It doesn't necessarily mean you're stupid or you can't do something forever. And on objective measures like the report card grades, particularly for kids who start out in our studies, on the on the bottom end on the lower half of achievement they, they reliably improve their performance and again from objective records of performance report card grades not on self report questionnaires now these are early days when we stick around in those schools and we find you know, that we have data subsequent to the next marking period, so now we're tracking kids longitudinally, the effects fade out over time. So I'm sobered by that, and I know that there's so much more that we need to do, but to me it's proof of concept. To me, it suggests that not only are these malleable things, grit, self-control, character broadly, but there's at least some reason to believe that they are teachable,
0: yeah, you know, one thing I don't, maybe it's in your book, I don't remember it, but uh, the one thing about grit is that it's fun. It, it's actually glorious to persevere at something and to get better at it. And I try to get my children to savor that when they notice it and when I notice it. And, of course, I try to look for it so that I can tell them that, oh, wow, you're your guitar playing's really improved. Doesn't that feel good? Because you remember how when you got started and you said, I can't do this, but you kept at it. Because I do want my children to, to persevere. Um, but I'm not sure that that encouragement as a parent has any real effect. I I, I don't know how much of it goes in. Um, my kids differ yeah, in how I they didn't... respond to it, for example, clearly. So I'm not, I just don't know.
1: Yeah, and you know, I, I, I have a 14-year-old and a 13-year-old at home and I go through this, Uh, myself as a parent as well, two things. Um, One is, I'm not sure fun is the right word. Fun is almost never a up conversation. Satisfying is a better, yeah. Uh, Satisfying, right? Gratifying, satisfying, right? I mean, sometimes people will say exhilarating, but they don't mean fun in the kind of pleasurable, you know, like you know, fun is something that almost by definition has a kind of effortlessness about it for most of us. Right. Um, so I, I think that one thing is to have an expectation that there are different kinds of, of, um, gratification and some of them are, 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 are fun and some of them aren't. Um, and the currency in which we're paid for our effort may, may not be like the way it feels to play a video game or, you know, eat a, Ice cream Sunday um, the second thing is I, I i you have an intuition and I share it that just telling somebody. Yeah, in a kind of luxury way, um, about grit and about, you know, the value of hard work and oh, see, there, you used to be terrible at that piano piece and now you're better. You know, there's lots of ham fisted ways to do this that don't work. Um, it's almost always better, of course, to show kids. So, um, I haven't been as good about this recently as I used to be, but I used to videotape or record my kids when they were playing, you know, uh, piano, for example, or viola, um, when they were really little, just starting out. And um, I only did this a few times, so I should have been more intentional, and done it more. And then when they got better, right, because you kind of gradually get better at something, and you really do forget how, right? And then you just show them, you're like, hey, there's a teacher who came to um, a lab meeting, he was a Latin teacher, and he uh, presented on what he did in his Latin class. And he recorded kids at the very beginning of the year taking the final exam, and they had to pronounce all these Latin sentences. And they were terrible, right? Because they didn't know what they were doing. and he videotaped every one of them. And then at the end of the year, he did the same thing, and the kids took the final exam. And he just, without much verbiage, showed them pre an and nice. post. And yeah. that was beautiful psychology at work.
0: Yeah, it's very cool. Um, you were, used the word science and scientific research a lot in your book. And I know you, you listen sometimes to Econ Talk, so you might imagine that I cringed a little bit. as a As a social scientist, I'm a little uneasy with that second word. Uh, I'd have been critical of economics, and I, I think, and and social sciences generally, I think of them more as arts than science. And of course, there's been a replication uh, crisis in the way I see it in in social science, certainly in psychology. The work of Brian Nozick and his team, and we've had him on a couple times talking about that. It's happening in economics, happening in in, in mainstream science, and in, in the physical sciences. A question of whether published peer reviewed research can be replicated. What are your thoughts on that uh, and how it might apply to uh, to your work
1: well I define science as a systematic uh, approach to understanding a, a question you know there have to be uh, a hypotheses articulated in advance not uh, not after the fact, uh not retrofitting to the observations, and there have to be measures right and I think those two things to me are really what define a scientific investigation versus something else that you might do to try to understand something and in my work um i I do have a priori hypotheses, and I have imperfect measures, but there are measures right and i i there are ways in which the data can fail to support my a priori hypotheses, and that to me makes it scientific. Now, that may be too loose of a definition, and other people, you know, might disagree with the way I'm defining the word. Um, but, but I think that in terms of the replication crisis, um, what's what's been clear as the data are coming out is that the most surprising non intuitive findings are the ones that are not holding up. they are by the way, because the human mind loves nothing more than a surprise uh, the ones that have reached top tier journals and made it into headlines Front page
0: of the you
1: know. right because it's like, oh, did you know that yeah. like you know did you know that self control is like a muscle and it you know is like well, it turns out that it's you know it runs on Sugar and if you drink lemonade, you're going to increase in self control. Well, it turns out no, that's actually not true. The finding is not replicating well. Um, it's not holding up. But my research is incredibly boring. I mean, uh, you know, some might argue, and I think it's an interesting philosophical argument, that it's tautological, that, that passion and perseverance for long-term goals predicts high achievement. I think it's possible that that finding might not hold up. Um, it would be surprising to me, that's for sure, in part because it's not a non-intuitive surprising thing. I think for me, the real question is, you know, how could you teach it and can the scientific method reveal the teachability of grit and, and, uh, and how would you do that? Right. Most importantly, you know, what can we do that would be useful? Um, now there, if I come up with a series of very surprising findings, like, did you know that you can teach grit in 20 minutes? Uh, (laughs) it's all about the color blue, you know, um, then I'll worry more. I worry about a lot of things, but in my own work, I don't worry so much about, the replication crisis. Um, there are, of course, other ways to criticize my work, but I don't, you know, it, West Point, I'll just give you one example. I have been taking data from West Point since the early 2000s, and I've been working with their scientists, so they, you know, are sort of double-check on my data, and, um, and And it's a very reliable finding. I really try hard not to publish anything that I can't replicate at least once. Sometimes because of the nature of the data, you just can't do it again because the study was too expensive, but um, I think the... Replication crisis is, uh, you know, going through its growing pains. Uh, you know, there's a lot of nastiness that 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 this dialogue unnecessarily produces. But in general, it's a good thing to worry about replication and to worry about findings that are too g-whiz to be true and in fact aren't. Um, but it's not something that I think is a as as relevant to my work as like other things that I might worry about. So
0: I was going to say you're the queen of grit. Uh, maybe empress might be a better better term. You've really, um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, I think you've fascinated a lot of people and gotten their attention. And I, I want to close with what's next for Angela Duckworth. Is is grit your life's work? Um, you're now the founder and director of the Character Lab. Do you want to tell us what that is and um, how it's going to relate to what yeah. you've done before?
1: Three years ago, I, I got you know. together with... <laughs> I know I'll give you I'll give you what's on my mind. 3 years ago, I got together with two educators that I had been working with for for years and we created a nonprofit which we called the Character Lab, the mission of which is to advance the science and practice of character development in children. It's not the Grit Lab and it's not the self-control lab either. It's beyond just what I personally study as a scientist. And I created it because I felt that there was potential. You know, I could be wrong, but my hypothesis is that if you bring the scientific method to bear on questions of of character development, character very broadly construed to include gratitude, honesty, kindness, imagination, creativity, all the things that Aristotle, I think, meant by character, that which allows us to thrive individually and to help society thrive as well. So that if you bring the scientific method to character development, we will make advances uh, far beyond those which have been made uh, to date and more than that, if educators who are with kids all day long and know a heck of a lot more about their psychology uh, than some of us psychologists do, if we could do that together you know, great things would happen um, and I made a decision quite soberly because it took me a long time to come to this uh, I made a decision in the last year to not only be a founder of this thing and a board member, but to really upend my life and to become the scientific director, to move the entire operation, in fact, to the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I have all of my chips on this one space. Um, I work on it, you know, 80 hours a week. And great. <laughs> yeah, I'm very gritty. So I've now directed this, um, and you know I could be entirely wrong. It could just be a complete flop. But um, my, that's my aim. I'm hoping to make more research possible, um, but not just on the things that I've studied as a scientist, but the things that you know many other scientists who are interested in other aspects of character study. So that's that's um, that's what I'm doing.
0: My guest today is Angela Duckworth. Her book is Grit: The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Angela, thanks for being part of EconTalk.
1: Thanks, Russ. It's been my pleasure.
0: This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening